All right, we're continuing in our Origins series uh, that Pastor Ray kicked off so uh, well last week. And uh, so in this series, we're answering uh, questions, typical questions we have. How did we get here? Why are things the way they are? What does it mean to be human? Why is there uh, pain in this world? And where is hope found? So today I'm going to be addressing the question is, why are things the way they are? Now, we can ask that question uh, multiple ways. And it all shows up in our tone of voice. So in other words, I can say, well, why are things the way they are? And obviously it's a negative tone of voice. Uh, Or I can say, why are things the way they are? And that's a sense of going, why are things so good? And we we live with both of those experiences uh, in our day-to-day lives. Some days we're struggling, we say, why are things the way they are? And some days we're celebrating, we're just overwhelmed by, by the goodness of God and the goodness of our world or the things that are going around in our, in our world. And this morning as we look at that question, the answer to that question actually goes back to our origins, <clears throat> to the very beginning <clears throat> excuse me, of, of creation and how God created us. Now you, you might wonder, why do origins matter? What difference does it make? Well, my point this morning is that your thinking, your belief about the origins of this world and of humanity make a big difference because it determines how you think about this world. It determines how you think about yourself, actually. So, as we get into Genesis chapter 1, you can turn there. Easy book to find, first book of the Bible. That's uh, where we're going to be spending our time today and for the next, uh, and for the next few weeks. The, I was thinking about creation and about beauty the other day, and we were in Kelowna last week on uh, Friday and Saturday for an event, and we were coming back on Saturday afternoon. And on Saturday afternoon, as we uh, left Kelowna, we went over the first portion of the Coquihalla, and, uh, and there have been uh, you know, the big signs that go up, and they say, oh, look out for snow and whatnot. And I thought, oh, well, I wonder, it's pretty nice down in the valley here. I wonder what it's going to be like on top. And I saw a motorcycle coming down, from the top, I thought, oh, it must be okay. Well, we got to the top, and it was snow and sleet and wind, and I thought, man, that guy's brave. He got through that. And then you go down to Merritt, and everything's nice again, back up to the top again, coming back here, and same thing again. It's ugly and miserable. And then this time of year, you come around by hope there somewhere, and, you, and it's like you come around the corner, and all of a sudden, it's like 100% spring, right? Like it's just gorgeous and the green is amazing and it's, and it's all the flowers are going and, and it's just this beautiful sense of spring. And I was kind of in awe a little bit uh, having just come through kind of the snow and everything else. And my wife makes this point. She looks at the trees and she said, okay, all the trees are green. We know that. But every one of them seems to be a different shade of green and it all works together. Like she likes design. So she's like, that's amazing how that works. And I'm thinking, it's green, right? It's just green. So actually, I got home and I Googled shades of green. There's a thousand shades of green. I'm like, really? <laughs> Do they all have names? Who would think of that? Well, I look at the beauty of our creation, and it's got a reason to it. It's got a, a construction to it. There's a plan to it. There is substance to it. And why is that? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 1. Uh, starting uh, in verse 3 is where we'll begin. 
And just before I read that, I want to just explain what you need to be listening for whenever you study a text of the Bible. So whenever you read a text of the Bible, the first thing you need to ask is, what was the writer trying to say to the people this is being written to? So a basic Bible study principle. If you're in a life group, you're studying the text, the first thing you want to know is, what did the writer want to say to the people this was being written to? Because our default is to read it in our world, in our day, and sometimes we think, well, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know what this means. And of course, when we're going back to the book of Genesis, we're going, we're going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and saying, well, what is the writer, what is the context to who this is being written to? So let me explain a bit of what God is doing here through Genesis. So in Genesis, you have God, the story of, God, of creation, and then God calling a people to himself, right? You have this, you're, you're, you're traveling quickly in Genesis, all the development that happens. Uh, the creation of humanity, we see sin enter the world, and we see God begin this process of calling a people to himself, and all his intentionality around that direction that happens through Genesis and, and uh, the first few books of the Bible. But God is speaking to a people uh, in the book of Genesis that, that are surrounded by people who believe completely different than the people that God is shaping. So he's shaping his people, the people of Israel, but everyone else around them thinks completely differently. What do they think? The people around them believe in multiple gods. So the Egyptians or the Mesopotamians or, or the Babylonians, they think of multiple gods. And so they have a theory on creation that is tied to multiple gods. And in that theory of creation, there are gods of the skies, gods of the animals, gods of the trees, gods of the seas, gods of the fish. That's what they believe. They believe often that the, the earth was created actually in a variety of ways and all kinds of different stories. Sometimes it's about gods having sex with each other. Sometimes it's because the gods uh, come, came out of their breath or out of their spit, like was believed about the god Atom, A-T-U-M, the god Adam, who's an Egyptian god. There is no intentionality in how they taught, in how God uh, and how the world was created in the ancient Near Eastern accounts. And in the midst of that, you have the story of Genesis, which, which breaks into that world and into all those, the, the, the setting that the people of God are in when this would have been finally written down and saying, God says, no, there is order, there is intention. There is a reason why things are the way they are. And that is a context into which now this text is given. See, because the biblical account is a bold message to the ancient world and to our world that God was intentional with the creation of, of humanity and the creation of the earth. God was intentional and specific in his creation. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't tied to mother nature. It wasn't tied to the stories of God's of being bored and therefore creating humans. It wasn't tied to the stories of God's having sex with each other and the human, humans are the outworking of that, where humans are simply an afterthought. God says, no, there is intentionality. There is creativity. He says, creation is not the result of a random set of events that have no intrinsic value, which is often taught today. Genesis declares that the God of Moses is alive, he is intentional, there's a reason why things are the way they are, 
and he wants to speak into your life and my life because of that intentionality. Creation tells us who God is and who we are. So we begin with creation is a mirror that reflects the person of God. Creation is a mirror that reflects the person of God. If you think about creation, if you look at this world, if you look at the thousand shades of green, if you look at all the, many of the flowers that we have enjoyed and are continuing to enjoy, I am totally struck by cherry, by cherry blossom trees. Like where I grew up, you know, having lived uh, across the prairies and, and in the southern states, there were no cherry blossom trees. We had other things, but not that. And I just am amazed by the beauty of those trees. It's just like, wow, what a creative thought. And God says, if you look at this world and you look at the God as creator, you go, man, he was intentional. He is all powerful. He's incredibly creative. He's incredibly structured. He's incredibly detailed. His design is amazing. He's an incredible artist to be able to create the variety of things we have in this world. The beauty, the color, the structure, the intentionality is quite amazing. There's a poet who said, uh, poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. It's not great poetry. And he said, he said, anybody can come up with a poem. He said, but he looked at a tree and he went, that's amazing. He was just enamored with it. A friend of mine, whose name is Dave, uh, years ago, I, I met Dave a whole bunch of years ago in Calgary, and uh, Dave had just become a Christ follower, and I said, Dave, so what led you to become a Christ follower? And Dave was a dentist by trade. And he said, you know, uh, in my dentistry training, I have to take all the sciences and biology and all these courses to prepare to be a dentist. And what really struck me in my study is that, you know, as I study the human body and the systems of the human body, there is so much that we learn about the human body. He said, but I was even struck more by how much we don't know. We don't know why the body does what it does. We don't know why the body functions. We can tell you a lot about how it functions and we can observe things repeatedly so then we know, okay, this causes that and we can figure that out. He said, but I look at the body and I go, oh my goodness, there must be a God. And then he said, he said one day you know, I'm mowing the lawn and I look at, I look at grass. And he said, in a blade of grass, he said, we can tell you how it works, we can't tell you why it works. And at the end of it, he said, if we can't tell you why life exists, we can't tell you why the body does what it does. He said, there must be a God. And that was the beginning of Dave's walk from his science classes uh, into a relationship with God because of the wonder and the beauty of creation which reflects God's intentionality, his creativity, his attention to detail, and his care for creation. So we begin in Genesis 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. So God spoke creation into existence. He took the formless and void and he began to shape it. And on the first day he started by creating day and night. And it's interesting. It sounds like such a simple thing. Those two little verses, God saying day and night. And yet actually in that first day, 
God created the trajectory for humanity of a pattern of life that he set in place on that first day by creating the rhythm of day and night. Because we know as we read through the days of creation, on the seventh day, God rested. So he created cycles of day and night. And then he created cycles of rest. And then for the Hebrew people, he he institutionalized that rest through the practice of the Sabbath. So in Exodus chapter 20 and in Exodus chapter 23, where God lays out his laws for the people, he says, I want you to take the Sabbath day. And that is a day of rest. You don't take care of your flocks. You don't take care of your, your crops. You trust me to take care of those things on that day. And so God instituted this cycle for humanity on the very first day. And that cycle is one that, know, that we know that we need it. The night and day cycle, we need it for our rest. If you had a bad night last night, you know how badly you want rest. So if you fall asleep, that's okay, I'll forgive you. Right? He creates this cycle for the restoration and the renewal, the daily renewal of all things. Then he says, every seventh day, I want you to take a day off. I want you to take a day of rest. And this past year, we've preached on on the significance of Sabbath rest. And in that day, he was saying, it's because you trust me. All the other nations around you, remember context? All the other nations around you are working seven days a week. I want you to be a witness to who I am and my provision, my care, and you take that day off. And that extends to us today. That cycle that began on that first day that God created and he instituted right into the community. And then on the second day, in verse 6, he said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning on the second day. So again, God's basically saying, I'm separating the water from the water that's on earth to the water that's in the heavens. Simply put. Expanse means heaven. So he's separating those out. Now you might say, okay, well, why does he spend a day doing that? And why is it written about this way? Why is it so specific that he's writing about this? Well, again, let's go back to context. So the people around the Hebrew people, they believed there was a whole pantheon, a whole multitude of gods in the heavens. Right? That's what they believed, that there were celestial beings, that there were multiple gods there. And so God is actually speaking specifically into that. So one of the neighbors were the Sumerians. And the Sumerians specifically placed this emphasis on this multitude of gods. And they believed that a god by the name of Anu, who was the sky god, and Enlil, the god of the, uh, the, god of the atmosphere, that these gods established and deposed kings of the, Sumer- of the Sumerian cities. So that was the belief of their neighbors, that it's these gods who put kings in place and they take kings out of place. Then there's Baal, who's identified as the rider of the clouds. He was the god of storm and rain. So now they had gods of storm and rain. But Genesis declares in this passage that God is Lord over all. There are no other gods. He is supreme. There is not a god of storm and rain. There is not a god that puts kings in place other than the god who is the king of kings and lord of lords. So in every context, he's always speaking directly into what others are trying to teach his people and trying to get them to worship these other gods. And if you read 
through the Old Testament, you repeatedly see the neighbors are, are trying to convince the people of Israel to worship other gods, and many times they do. They worship idols of wood and stone created by human hands instead of the one true God who is the creator of all and the origin of all. That's what they are doing. But God is in his sovereignty, is working, so he creates night and day, and then he creates the heavens and the earth and separates the water. And he's doing this because creation prepares the earth for human existence. Creation prepares the earth for human existence. And in that preparation, God takes the final step to prepare the earth for inhabitation. And he says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And so it was. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. So God now has created the... the, um, the format, the place for, for inhabitation. There's night and day. Water has been, has been separated. And now there is earth and vegetation is appearing. So now you can actually inhabit this place. But again, God is showing how the earth produces fruit and how that fruit is blessed to produce more fruit by his creating hand because the neighboring nations were saying, well, there's, there's um, mother nature, basically. Mother Nature takes care of this. Or they were saying there's fertility gods and because of that, procreation or, or, or fertility in, in crops and animals happens because of all the fertility rights or because these gods are having sex with each other or that's how this fertility happens. So all kinds of nations were following all kinds of rituals to try and make things happen the way they thought they should. They produced gods of stone and wood. They participated in rituals. They were superstitious. So you say, well, we don't do those silly things today. We don't produce gods of wood and stone. And yet, I regularly run into people who are superstitious. I regularly run into people who say, we have to do a certain set of events in a certain way, or we have to, we have to build our house a certain way, or we have to do things a certain way because we're superstitious. Because that will bless us. And God says, no, that's not where blessing comes from. It didn't come from blessing back then. It doesn't, blessing doesn't come that way today. Because God is the one of our origin. God is the ruler of all. And these things were being practiced because they wanted the blessing of the gods. And God says, there's only one God who blesses, and that is me. And that blessing is what I put right in creation. Not because of, of some superstitious practice. Now God begins to take the formless and void that in which he created the earth and the water and the vegetation and he fills it more now in verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two greater lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. 
And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. So in God's creative power now, he sets the, the stars and the sun and the moon into their orbits. Now you may wonder as you read the text, why does he say lesser light and greater light? Well, again, the context is actually what determines this because the, the surrounding nations had a God of sun and they had a God of moon that they worshiped. And God says, no, these are simply greater lights and lesser lights that I put in place because they serve my purposes. They are not God's. They simply serve my purposes. And so he puts them in place. They are here to create the fundamental rhythms of the day for light and darkness, the fundamental rhythms of the seasons. They help your crops to mature. They cause the oceans to rise and to fall through the phases of the moon. It says these things simply serve the purposes that I have created them for. And now is the final act of creation prior to the arrival of people in verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with, with the swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply the fill the water, uh, the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning on the fifth day. And then at the beginning of the sixth day, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So God has now prepared everything up until the arrival of humanity and Pastor Ray will speak to that, to that next week. But again, God is setting the stage on these first five days and the beginning of the sixth day. And here again, very specifically, God is speaking about all the sea creatures because as I mentioned earlier, people in that time, many of them thought that there were gods in the sea creatures, in the great big sea creatures that existed and probably the greater the sea creature, the bigger the whale, the more powerful the God. And, and God speaks into that and into that culture. And again, he says, no, those are my creation. They are not God's. They are simply my creation. That's what they are. And they serve purposes. And I have put them there to serve my purposes. And that is what they are. And the blessing, he says, comes from him. Right? He said that very specifically, is that I will bless I will bless them to reproduce. It does not come from some other God. It does not come from some other fertility rite, as I mentioned. There is no magic to ensure blessing. It simply comes from the hand of God, our creator, the source of our origin. See, creation proves not only that God prepares, or the creation proves that God has, gives value to people, or rather, that he prepared the earth for people to inhabit. But creation also proves that people have value. Creation proves that people have value. So God spent all this time, these first five and a half days, preparing the earth for people to inhabit this place. And he brought order to disorder. He brought shape to where there was no shape. He brought creativity to where there was nothing. He, he designed in detail 
and specificity, all the things that we see in nature, the heavens and the earth, the water and the stars, everything that we can see around us. He provided food to eat through vegetation for animals and for people. He made it completely ready. And God is not simply the God of nature. nature. He is the one who renews life and creates life, brings it into being, and preparing the world for humanity. This is incredibly significant for us. Why? Why is this so significant for us? Because I think we can take great comfort in knowing that the God who brought order out of disorder, who took the formlessness and made it form, the God who had that intentionality and in preparation for the rival of humanity obviously loves and values humanity incredibly. And if he can bring order out of that kind of chaos, he can also bring order into the chaos of your life. He can also speak creativity into the course of your life. He can also speak hope into the course of your life because he is the creator God. He is the one who clarifies the confusion because he is a God of order. He is not a God of disorder. And just like in creation, in the first three verses of Genesis, it talks about the spirit of God hovering over the water for creation to begin. The spirit of God through the Holy Spirit hovers over the lives of those who follow him. And, And his creating work is happening in us. Obviously, he created us and we exist But then as we give our lives to him, he increasingly makes us more like him by his creating work in us. He continues to do that work. And here's the other piece that I think is so significant, and this just struck me last night. Uh, um, I was on the internet for a little bit, and I came across uh, a session at, I think it was University of Florida. Uh, So it was a bunch of students in a setting like this speaking to Ravi Zacharias and his team And Ravi Zacharias is someone who articulates faith rather well and often goes into settings to talk about uh, whether it's creation or um, uh, is there a God, how do we know, and all those questions, apologetic questions. And he was given a question, or the team was given a question about transgenderism and identity. And while I can't answer the whole question, the part that's relevant to our text today is one of Ravi's team got up and he said, well, if you are an atheist, or if you do not believe in a creator God, that means that you then have to do everything that you can do to figure out your own identity. Like you will need to figure out what, you're, what you gain your identity from. And we see people trying to gain their identity from all kinds of things. It can be from their position in life. It can be from their income status. It can be from their education. It can be from their family. It can be from all kinds of things. And then he said this, but we as Christians, as followers of Christ, said our identity is given to us. Our identity is given to us by the one who created us, the one who prepared this earth for our inhabitation. He said that is where our identity comes from. So friends, if you are here and you are a Christ follower, what God says to you is I made you, I formed you in your mother's womb. I am pleased with you. I was very intentional in how I created you. I value you. You are my child. If you've accepted Jesus Christ and follow him, he says, you are welcome into my presence because you are my child. I have given you identity. Whatever thing that you think makes you not good enough, smart enough, rich enough, or whatever it is, that's a lie. Every one of those is a lie. 
whatever has been done to you in the past that you think makes you less of a person, in my eyes, is not true. Whatever you have done to others that you have asked forgiveness for, even how, no matter how terrible it was, I've forgiven you for it. I have given you identity. I am your creator, God. You are my child. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I watched you being formed in your mother's womb. I called you to be my own. See, friends, that is the, the, the trajectory of creation. And whenever we try and find identity somewhere else, when we make our gods of wood and stone or our gods of our homes or our gods of our education or our gods of our bank account or our gods of our families, what we're doing is saying, God, you creating me actually is not enough. I'm actually rejecting that. And the gods we make, even though they don't look like the gods of wood and stone of Genesis, these gods are just as real because our worship of them is just as real. How do I know that? Because whatever we give our time attention to, what we give our money to is what we worship. Worship is simply the act of of giving your attention to something and, and priority to that thing. Worship is not simply singing. It's actually what we give our time and attention to. And when we do that, we are building these other gods which is no different than the book of Genesis. Because we are looking for something from those gods. We're looking for security. We're looking for status. We're looking for comfort. We're looking for provision. All the same things those people were looking for. So friends, it's no different in our day and age as it was then. And God speaks into that. And he gives us identity. And it is actually from that place of origin when you realize how you were made that any story that we come with that say, when we say, I'm not good enough, God says, oh, stop it right there. That's a lie. As soon as you say, well, I'm not smart, oh, stop it right there. That's a lie. I made you. I'm proud of you. You're my child. As soon as we begin the sentence with, I'm not, God says, stop it right there. Because I say, yes, you are, because you're my child. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And I know there's people here right now who are struggling. They're struggling because they believe they're not enough. They're struggling because they believe, you believe that God won't accept you. You're struggling because you believe you're being rejected because of who you are. Those are all lies, friends. People do hurtful things that may reject you, but God does not reject you. And God says you are enough because I made you. I formed you. You're a part of my creative process, my intentional, sovereign process. I want you to hear that this morning, friends. Because the enemy wants you to believe you're not enough, that no one loves you, you'll never measure up, you don't fit, you should never come back. Those are all lies because he doesn't want you to understand who you are in Christ Jesus. And because of who we are, that gives us the mindset as to how we look at our world. There are great implications to this. They get very practical. It's a worldview that comes because we know our Father and our Creator. So the practical ways it shows up, we should be concerned about our environment simply because God created it. Now, some environmentalists, I would say it's their religion. 
It's their reason for being. God says, that's not what I want you to do. What I want you to do is honor my creation. More importantly, I want you to honor my created. So there should be anger at terrorism and hatred and war because it is God's people, people he created, even if they don't know him. But it's people he loves. And whenever violence goes against another person, that should break our hearts and we should stand up for injustice. We should do everything we can to raise the dignity of human life and protect the unborn. Why? Because God created them. We should protect the infirm. We should protect all who cannot protect themselves and stand up for injustice. We should recognize and respect the dignity of all people. And that begins with the smallest thing of learning to love our neighbor, who we may not even like, actually. Right? Because we're people, so it's not easy to like everybody. But God says, I want you to love them even if you don't like them. Why? Because he loves them and they're part of his creation. Our concern for improving our world is a reflection of the character and the heart of God. And that's why I believe wherever any church is, wherever Willingdon Church is, this whole neighborhood, wherever Willingdon people touch people's lives, whether, pe- whether those people follow God or not, they should thank whoever they thank because Willingdon and the people of Willingdon exist. Why? Because we believe that we should exhibit the heart of God to our world. It's that simple. And that extends to those who do not know him and who may never know him, who may reject him. But that's what it means to be part of God's creation. And what did God call this creation? He called it good. Now, good is such an underwhelming word, isn't it? I mean, he does it five times. Verse 10, 12, 18, 25 is good. And I thought, good, like, What do you say when you see an amazing sunset? We've had some great sunsets the last couple of weeks. What do you say when you see that? That's good. Like, is that what you, or, you know, you go to the, you go to the mountains on a clear day and you just go, that's, that's good. Like, it seems like such an understatement. So I have three boys, right? Boys speak in single words most of the time. You know, how was your day? Good. (laughs) That's all you get. But, you know, so over time you learn by voice inflection if good meant lousy, good meant okay, or good meant great. But they all said good, right? Because they're boys. That's all they say. It's like, what do you want me to talk more? I don't need to talk more. I told you it was good. So I looked up the word good in the Old Testament. The meaning of the word good actually is so much more than just good. It means happy, beneficial, aesthetically beautiful, morally righteous, preferable, a superior quality, or of ultimate value. So when God says good, he's saying all of that. He's saying my creation, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, is good, is happy, beneficial, aesthetically beautiful, morally righteous, preferable, of superior quality, of ultimate value. The other reason he says this is because people in that day and actually throughout much of history believed that the material world was actually evil. So the, the, the world around them, they thought the material world was evil. That was true when this was written. That was true in the time of Christ. And so when this is written, God is saying, do not call anything that I say good evil. And then you go forward in, in the church in Ephesus, Paul is teaching Timothy and there's people saying, well, you can't eat that food. It's not good, right? It's evil. And Paul teaches Timothy, no, do not call what God created evil. It's good. Like the thinking continues. God calls this world good. Not because it's inherently good. It's because he created it. It has his, his imprint on it. 
What God declares good, we need to tr- see and treat as good. And that is why creation requires people to steward earth responsibly. I mean, this is such a hot topic today in so many places. But there is a biblical perspective on creation and why we should be good stewards of it. And I thought it was important we just touch on it. Author Francis Schaeffer says this, this means that a tree is not good only because we can cut it down and build a house or because we can cut it down and burn it in order to heat the house. It is good because God made it and pronounced it good. Like everything else in creation, it conforms to God's nature. What else do we know from the Bible? We know that when, in chapter 3 of Genesis, when the fall of man, when man rejected God, when humanity rejected God, sin entered the world, we know that all of creation bears the weight of that, and creation is not today what God intended it to be fully because of the mark of sin. You know how I know? There's mosquitoes. (laughs) And many other things that the Bible describes. It says this will be the fallout. You will have to work hard to raise a crop from the earth. You know there will be pain in childbirth and other things that are the mark of that. And then Paul, the Apostle Paul addressing this in Romans chapter 8 says, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. So we know the time is coming when Jesus returns and, and creation will be all that God intended it to be, the new heaven and the new earth. It'll be the culmination of creation rather than the distortion of creation that we experience today. The culmination of our relationships with God rather than the distortion that we experience today in, in relationships with each other. See, that is God's intent. God finds creation good. And we should be thankful that we made it. We should delight in it. We should appreciate its beauty. And every time we walk out the doors, look at the beauty of our creation to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that I am part of this incredibly beautiful creation. And the intentionality I see around me, I know is actually also true in me. Because God declares it to be good. And it points us back to his creativity. I love Psalm 8, verses 3 and 9, or 3 to 9, where he said, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? You made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, put all things under their authority, the flocks and herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. The psalmist looks around and goes, wow, wow. And then he looks in the mirror and goes, oh my goodness, the one who made this made me. The one who made this made me. We are our very existence to God. We owe him everything. Nothing is our own. Not our time, not our thoughts, not our money not our possessions, it all comes from him. And to push back against them is an act of rebellion. And actually, it's an act of self-destruction. To push away from the one who created you is an act of self-destruction because it pushes away from his love, it pushes away from his care, pushes away from his provision. And if you read through the Bible, one thing you will see over and over and over and over 
is the people of God looking at the idols and the people around them and sort of wandering away or making alliances uh, with the neighboring nations so that they can uh, defeat the other nation that's attacking them. And God will repeatedly say through the prophets, I, the God who made heaven and earth, if you will trust me, I will protect you. I will lead you. I will carry you forward through this. And he says it over and over. And it's always throughout the whole Bible, the God who created you, the God who made you, the God who made this world. It's like God is saying to us in local current language, I've got this. I am the God of all creation and I've got this. And he says it to you and me when you say to him, dealing with your depression, dealing with your fear, dealing with your anxiety, dealing with your worry about money and finances or dealing with food, dealing with children, whatever it might be. And Jesus took this to the most personal place, Matthew 26. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? On one hand, you have creation. You have the world. On the other hand, you have food and clothing, our most basic human needs. And God's answer is the same. Trust me. I created you. Trust me. I care for you. Trust me. I choose what to do is good. Trust me. I value you. Trust me. I know you. Trust me. I am the God of creation. Trust me. Don't chase idols of wood and stone. Don't chase superstitions. Do the only thing that creation actually, I think, calls us to do. Creation calls us to worship our creator. That is the one response. And what does that mean to worship? Does it mean to sing? Yes, it means that, but it means so much more. Right? To worship something, it becomes the object of your affection and your attention. When you worship God, you're saying, you're the most important thing to me. I trust you. I follow you. I will do what you say. I give my life to you. I trust you for my life. In the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, well, all of history culminates in where the earth will stop groaning at Christ's return and where justice will reign once and for all, fully and completely. And where all pain will be gone. There will be no more crying, no more tears. Those with broken bodies will have new ones. Hope will be restored fully at Christ's return. And a Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created, and get this, what pleased you. God did not create anything that didn't please him. You created what pleased you. And so at the end of time, when sin will be taken care of once and for all, all things will be restored to God's intent. The earth, our bodies, our lives, his kingdom fully present. And the peace we can experience today is his kingdom within us as we give our lives to him and follow him. And if you've never done that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a moment. And if you have done that, but you're struggling this morning, saying, man, I'm struggling to trust you, God. I understand you're my creator, but I'm struggling. I want to pray for you 
uh, this morning as well. So let's stand for closing prayer. So if you've never given your life to your creator, to God, because of the work of Christ, just pray with me. Father, thank you for creating me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for making me so wonderful and so intricate in detail. I'm sorry for rejecting you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus so that I could understand relationship with you. Thank you for his death on the cross, for the forgiveness of my sins, for the removal of my shame, for the conquering of my fear. I give you my life. Come and fill me with your Holy Spirit and teach me to follow you and walk with you in God's community from this day forward. And Father, I pray for the rest of us. We claim your name, but I know we struggle. Some struggle with superstition. Some struggle with creating their own gods trying to control their lives. And Father, I pray that they would repent of that, give that to you and in exchange, take their full identity in you and walk in the joy and peace of that. Father, some struggle because they hear the words, you're not good enough in some form. Struggle with anxiety or struggle with depression or struggle uh, with relationships. We struggle in so many ways. Father, I pray that your spirit would pour out your peace even in this moment and to hear the words, I love you. You are my child. I made you. I am pleased with you. Come into my presence and follow me. Father, I pray also that you would be with us, those of us who are celebrating, who are walking in a space in life that is filled with joy right now. And we thank you for that. And I pray that for all of us, as we go into this week, we would look at this world and the people around us the way you do. We would care for creation and others because you do. We would respect the dignity of others and build it up because you do. We would protect those who are not being protected because you do. Because you are the God of creation and you value your creation and we should do the same whether it's this world or whether it's people. And so Father, lead us in doing that and being your kingdom people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.